Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. We've been covering these spiritual gifts here in Romans chapter number 12, and we've covered four of the gifts, and we've kind of paired them together uh, in a way that I think kind of makes sense, that helps us to understand the differences and also how they complement each other. Uh, The gift that we took a look at uh, in the first two gifts was prophecy and teaching. And uh, those two gifts deal with the declaration of the Word of God and then also the teaching and uh, getting us into the understanding of the Word of God, where to stand and then also why to stand. And God has given these gifts to believers here in the church so that we might be benefited by those gifts. And then we took a look at ministry and ruling. We took a look at leadership and the importance of leadership and and the heart of the leader. The heart of the leader is wanting to help those to get to where they need to go and setting the example, being the first one to step out. And then also you have the gift of ministry, which is simply service and helping others in their Christian walk to help them grow in the Lord, to help them in areas in which uh, there might be some weakness. And so there's this gift of ministry and a special gift of ministry. Every one of us, of course, should be ministering to others. Every one of us should be teaching. Every one of us should be, in some ways, uh, looking to be able to help others and leading them to the Lord. Uh, But some have this particular spiritual gift that is given to them. And today we're going to take a look at the last three, exhortation, giving, and mercy. So for these three gifts, I wanted to take a look at three different passages in the Bible, three events out of Scripture that might help us to see what do these gifts look like when they are implemented uh, on a personal basis. So the first gift is the gift of exhortation. The gift of exhortation, we see that in verse number eight, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. The idea of exhortation is simply to urge. Uh, Sometimes the word in the Bible that is used here is the word beseech. And so it is the gift of helping, urging other people forward to where they need to go. So I wanted to use this story in the Old Testament out of 2 Kings chapter number 5. This event is about Naaman. And Naaman was the captain of the host of the king of Syria. So there's this nation, the nation of Syria, and the head... Uh, of the armies of the nation of Syria is Naaman. And Syria had come through and conquered uh, Israel and had brought back uh, some of those that were conquered. And uh, one of these uh, that were taken back was a little maid. And this little maid served Naaman's wife. And uh, this uh, gal, as she was serving there, heard about Naaman. Now, Naaman, of course, being the captain of the host of the king of Syria, he's uh, quite a strong man, quite a valiant man. I mean, this, he was a brave man going out into battle, having some great accomplishments. We might uh, look to him as being the successful man. He was successful in what he did. He had reached the very pinnacle of his profession, and he was as far up as you could possibly get, if you will, uh, without, of course, being the king. And so Naaman being strong, being accomplished, having done all of these things, of course, everybody would have looked up to him, but the Bible says that he was a leper. 
He was great, he was strong, he was respected, he was accomplished, and yet he had a disease that was, number one, incurable, number two, it was deadly, and number three, it was contagious. So here he had this disease that was incurable, he had this disease that would ultimately kill him, and he had this disease that, because it was contagious, separated him away from everyone. So he wasn't able to be with his wife. He wasn't able to be with his kids. He wasn't able to be with his friends and his family, with his co-workers. Of course, in 2 Kings chapter 5, they wouldn't have celebrated Christmas, but you can imagine the sorrow in his heart if the whole family were getting together for a Christmas-type meal and he was not able to attend. And so here is this man, quite accomplished, having done all that you might desire in life, and yet he was a leper. Being a leper then, he was an outcast, separated out from society. And so here is this maid, this maid hears about uh, Naaman and says, oh, if he could just go to Israel, there is a man that could heal him. And somebody overheard this maid saying this and said, really? And so he went over to Naaman and said, hey, Naaman, hey, this, this maid over here says that somebody in Israel could heal you of leprosy. And he says, Really? And so he went to his boss, he went to the king, and he said, hey, I, I had this maid that's from Israel, and, and she said that uh, somebody there could heal me, and what do you think? And he said, sure, go for it. Here, take all of this gold, take this silver, take these uh, changes of raiment, and go over there and, and be healed. So here is Naaman, he comes with this big, if you will, entourage, you know, he's the captain of the host, you know, the whole army is going over to Israel, and uh, he doesn't know the name. He was just told somebody in Israel, so he just went to the king, and he knocked on the king's door and said, king, I'm here. The king is like, uh, what are you doing here? <laughs> I'm here to be healed. And the king is like, healed? Healed from what? <laughs> My leprosy, of course. And the king is like, thinking, I'm sure in his mind, everybody knows leprosy cannot be healed. <laughs> And he goes to his advisors and says, look, at what, what is this guy asking me for? I mean, this is ridiculous. He's just trying to pick a fight with me. What am I supposed to do? Well, there's a prophet there. His name was Elisha. And he heard about this conundrum of the king of Israel. And so he said, just send him over to me. And so he does. And he sends him over. And Naaman shows up at Elisha's door. In 2 Kings chapter 5, verse number 9, the Bible says, So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariots and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. Now, Elisha is a prophet. He's a man of God. He's not the wealthiest businessman. He's not nobility. He's not royalty. He probably lived in a very simple house. So imagine the captain of the host of the king of Syria showing up at your door. He's probably got his, you know, army uniform on and everybody shows up with their all of everything. And you can imagine the pageantry just kind of showing up at his door. And uh, one of the servants just goes up and, you know, knocks at the door and waits for the door to open. The Bible says in verse number 10, And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth. He was furious. And went away and said, Behold, look, 
I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But he had all of these expectations set up in his mind about how God was going to do all of these things. That's a very dangerous thing to come up with your own expectations of how God is going to do things for you. But that's what Naaman did. Naaman said, oh, I'm sure God is going to do it this way and that's how it's going to be. And he went over there and God says, I got a different plan for you. And he was angry about it. He was furious. And he turned away and went in a rage. You could see almost the steam coming out of his ears. Verse number 13, and his servants came near and spoke unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean? Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. What? an incredible story. First of all, of the power of God. Everybody knew that leprosy was incurable, but here was Naaman cured of his leprosy. But the real turning point here in the story, once Naaman shows up in Israel, is not the king, it's not even Elisha or Naaman, it's the servants. Remember, Naaman shows up and, uh, you know, he hears from the servant, you know, Elisha, Elisha doesn't even go to the door himself, you know, he just sends a servant and says, hey, just tell him to go to the river Jordan and dip seven times and he'll be clean. And so you can imagine the servant just opening the door and seeing everybody there and saying, Elisha says, go to the river Jordan, dip seven times and you will be clean. And you can imagine Naaman on the other side thinking, what? Where's Elisha? Elisha said, go to the river Jordan, dip seven times, and be clean. And you could see the anger welling up in the heart of Naaman. This is not how I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be grand. I thought it was going to be spectacular. I mean, I, I'm, the king, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the captain of the host of the king of, uh, of Syria. I'm a big man. I'm an important person. And important people have people done things in very important ways. And that's what he thought. He thought this is how it's going to be done. And you could see the pride in his heart saying, if it's not going to be done my way, it's not going to be done anyway. Now, here are the servants looking at Naaman, knowing all of the hardships of Naaman's life. He's a leper. He can't be with his family he can't be with other people. He's suffering from this disease. Looking at him, being angry about, I don't want to be healed that way. And they could all see how foolish Naaman is being. And so I can imagine one of the servants saying, who's going to tell him that maybe he should do what he should do. <laughs> you tell him. No, no, no. I'm not telling him. You tell him. You, know? you can imagine all the servants and think, okay, all right, let's all of us together go and tell him. Because the Bible says that his servants went to him. You know, you can imagine, understand why. 
Now, here's this example of exhortation being displayed. Because the purpose of exhortation is to exhort to do the right thing. That's the purpose of exhortation. The purpose of exhortation is somebody seeing the life of somebody else and seeing them and going, hey, you know what? I know what you should do. And I think you probably also know what you should do, but I can see that you're struggling with doing it. So I want to encourage you to do the right thing. A couple of times when this word of exhortation, or as I mentioned before, beseech is used in the Bible, Romans chapter 12, verse number one. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It is a reasonable service for us to offer our lives to the Lord. And Paul is writing to the church and saying, I'm encouraging you, I'm exhorting you to do the right thing to do what you ought to do. That's what exhortation is. And remember that these servants are servants. They are not his boss. They are not his king. They have no authority over him. And so what do they do? They simply come alongside of him. They have no power to simply command him. They can simply exhort him. That's what they did. The servants came near and spake unto him and said, my father, begin to give their plea. What they're saying is, Naaman, look, we can't make you do anything. We're your servants. You're the one that tells us what to do. But can we come alongside of you as a friend, as somebody who cares about you, somebody who says, you know what, I want the best for you, can I come alongside of you and just encourage you? I want the best for you. Will you do the right thing? Will you do what you need to do? And you know what? If Naaman said no, nobody there could stop him. Nobody could tell him what to do. Nobody could order him around. But that's what exhortation is. The position of exhortation is to come alongside. That's actually what this word for exhort, it literally means to come alongside of. And it carries with the idea of exhortation, beseeching, urging. It's the idea of, hey, you know what? I'm your friend. I, I, I care about you. I, I want the best for you. Here, let me, let me help you in what will be the best for you. That's what exhortation is. And so here is somebody who understands, you know what? I'm not your dad and I'm not your mom. I'm not your boss, I'm not your, your, your authority, I'm not your coach, I'm not your teacher, I'm not your principal, not even your pastor. I can't tell you what to do, but I really want you to do the right thing because the right thing is the best thing for you. And so here is this gift of exhortation to come alongside of somebody. In fact, that's one of the major purposes of the church. One of the major purposes of the church in gathering together is to exhort each other. Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 24 says, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So the idea of us gathering together as a church is as brothers and sisters in Christ, we encourage each other to do the right thing. 
So that ought to be the heart of why we gather together. I know in the age of uh, the digital age and the internet and all, all of that, you know, it's, it's easy to think that everything could be substituted by technology. You know, I don't have to go into the office anymore. I can just work, you know, separately. I could even live in a separate state. And uh, all of these things can be replaced and you can even go into certain restaurants and things and see that people are being replaced with technology. How many of us have gone into a restaurant and order things on a screen, you know, and you know, all of these sorts of things. But exhortation requires person-to-person -person contact. It requires us to be together. And that's a big part of the church, that exhortation. And the plan is to strengthen the believer. That's what exhortation is. Exhortation is looking at another believer and saying, hey, you know what? I could see that you're struggling in this area. I could see that you need some help in your Christian walk. I want to help you, but I'm just, a, I'm just your fellow brother. Or I'm just your fellow sister. I'm not your, I'm not your boss. I'm, I'm not God. I, I can't tell you what to do, but I really want to encourage you to do the right thing. And you could see how that will be so necessary here in the church that we need brothers and sisters to come alongside other brothers and sisters and say, hey, you know what? I can see that you're struggling with something. Hey, let me encourage you. Keep on keeping on. Hey, let me encourage you. Be faithful. Let me encourage you. Don't stop. Let me encourage you. Continue to follow the Lord. And guess what? These servants came alongside of Naaman and they said, look, Naaman, if he had told you to do some spectacularly difficult thing, wouldn't you have done it? Of course you would have. How much easier is it to just go into the river and dip seven times and be clean? How, how important is this to you? You would have done anything to be clean. What about dipping seven times? And he said, you know what? You're right. And the Bible says he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again unto the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Praise the Lord for these servants. They came alongside of this, uh, their, their boss, Naaman, and said, you know what? Naaman, oh, he, he's being ridiculous right now. I can't believe that he's refusing to do this. It's so simple. I understand. It's, it's not grand. It's not spectacular. It's maybe not what you expected, but you could be clean. Just, just do the thing. And so they came alongside, encouraged him, and you know who benefited? Naaman. Naaman was clean, and he was able to go back to regular life, if you will. That's the gift of exhortation. Coming alongside somebody, seeing what is needed in their life, and exhorting them to do that thing. We need that in the church. The second gift that we're taking a look at is the gift of giving. The gift of giving. So we saw that in verse number eight, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. All right, we're dealing with financial giving. And a great picture and illustration of this is Barnabas in the book of Acts. So in the book of Acts, there at the beginning, lots of people are getting saved. Thousands of people have trusted Christ as their Savior, been baptized and added to the church, and they're, they're growing in the Lord, and they're learning the doctrines of uh, the Word of God, and, and uh, they're fellowshipping together, they're spending time together, they're teaching each other, they're growing in the Lord. This is an exciting time, but there's also some difficulties that arise within the church. Within the church, you see that Sometimes people lose their jobs because they trusted Christ as their Savior. They say, oh, you're going to trust that Jesus, oh, that, 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 that Messiah, so-called? Okay, you're not working here anymore. And they would lose their jobs. 
Sometimes they'd be kicked out of their family. Sometimes they would be ostracized from uh, society. And so here's these newborn believers that have lost jobs and lost family relationships and, and lost connections with their communities and things like that. And so the church would bring them in. And so there's a great financial need just to be able to help these brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and the Bible says that the church said, you know, we got to take care of these newborn believers. And so in verse number 36, the Bible says, And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So these believers were helping each other already, but clearly Barnabas, in a great show of love and compassion, took land, sold the land, and gave all of the money to the church in order to help these brothers and sisters in Christ that really had nothing. And so you see this gift of giving being demonstrated in Barnabas. It's this gift of generously supplying the needs of the brothers and sisters in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 11, it says, "...being enriched in everything to all bountifulness." which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. And in verse 13, it says, whilst by the experiment of this ministration, they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men. This gift of giving is known by its generosity. It's profound. Wow, that's bigger than we expected. That's more than you might even hope for. And here is Paul writing to the church at Corinth saying, wow, you know, here's a church that really gave a lot, even more than we expected, and really gave liberally and generously. And that's, uh, that's, that's what Barnabas did. Obviously, he was living there in Jerusalem. And uh, I don't know the real estate market of Jerusalem at the time, but I know the real estate market of Los Angeles right now. And uh, you can imagine if you had a piece of land, somebody had a piece of land, and sold the land and gave it to the church, we might all be a little surprised. Wow, that's, that's quite generous. Even if it was a small piece of land, you know, that, that's a lot of money. And you took all of that and you gave it all to the church, that's very generous. That's what Barnabas did. I mean, th this was clearly above and beyond what many would have expected. And so we have this gift of giving known by its generosity but also by its sacrifice, the Bible makes it very clear that he took the land and he sold it and he gave it away. I mean, that's land that he could have used to maybe build something and rent it out. He could have leased it out, had perpetual income for years and years to come. But instead, he took it and he sold it and he gave it. I mean, that's sacrifice. That's a real sacrifice from Barnabas. And that's what this gift of giving is. This gift of giving is not just giving generously, but also giving sacrificially. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. The idea was they were so giving, they would have given themselves if they could. That's how giving that they were. And so here is this man, Barnabas, that took land and sold it, sacrificed it for the Lord. You know, it reminds me of this uh, passage where Jesus is standing and he's watching the entrance to the temple area where they're collecting the offerings. Now, you and I, in this day and age, we collect offerings perhaps a little bit differently. 
You know, we have this little plate that we pass around and there are envelopes, you know, people might put a check in there, people might put, you know, some, some cash in there. If you wanted to give an offering to the Lord, some people give online, you know, we have those opportunities to give online. So there's different ways that people give, but in those days, there was only one way to give. There was a collection box that was there in the public area where people could see, and they didn't have digital currency they didn't have Visa or MasterCard. They didn't have checks or bills. They had coins. So when you would drop your coins into the offering, I mean, you know, you've been out and about and somebody dropped a coin on the floor. I mean, you could hear it immediately. So every time somebody gave an offering, people would know somebody's given an offering. And so here is Jesus standing there looking at this collection of offerings in chapter 12. It says, and Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow and threw in two mites, which make a far thing. And he called unto him his disciples and saith unto him, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. What? What are you talking about? This little widow woman who really has very little, cast in two pennies, if you will, gave more than all of these? How could that be? For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even her living. You know, it's easy to give up the extras, right? To give up the things that we don't need. To give up the things that we're like, I got a different thing, I, I can get rid of this one. You know, I got a new fridge, I don't need this old fridge anymore. I got a new car, I don't need the old car anymore. I got a new phone, I don't need the old phone anymore. I got new clothes, I don't need the old clothes anymore. You know, giving up those old clothes is pretty easy to give up. Because I got new clothes, I got a new phone, I got these new things. And uh, it's easy to give up those extra things. But Barnabas wasn't giving up extra things. He bought a new phone and then he took the phone and he gave it away, in essence, if you will. He's very sacrificial in his giving. But I think here is a real key to this gift of giving. Sacrifice, I know many sacrifice, many give generously, and, and there are many here that give generously. There is another component to this gift of giving though, which is giving in sincerity. The Bible there says to give, those that give, give with simplicity. The idea of simplicity is sincerity, unity in the heart. Now, there's no sense of when Barnabas gave this gift where he said, hey, I'm giving you this gift, but just in the future, if some big decisions are going to be made at the church, I want to sit at the table. There was no sense of that in the heart of Barnabas. There was no sense of you scratch my back, I scratch yours. There's no sense of, hey, later on, you're going to do me a favor. And we live in a world that's very suspicious of who's giving to who, right? When you think about politicians and you think about who are their donors, people really want to know who their donors are, right? You want to know who's giving money to who, because you want to know, all right, who's got the ear of the politician? 
Who's got the ear of the president? Who's got the ear of these important decision makers? You know, who are the lobbyists that are appearing before these, you know, politicians and all of these things, you know, and, and it's very important, you know, and you have these, uh, uh, these uh, college presidents recently that came before Congress, right? And uh, they said a few words and people were upset. And one of the donors of UPenn, he said, I got a hundred million dollars and I'm, I'm taking that back. Unless you take it back, unless she resigns, I'm taking it back. And she basically resigned, in part because of the money that was there. I have the money, so I have the influence, and I have the power. And so we could see that kind of world. The danger is if that sort of thinking comes into the church. If that kind of thinking, hey, I'm a, I, I give a lot of money here. Hey, I give, a, I give a lot of offerings here. Hey, it'd be a real shame if, if you lost me. Hey, it'd be a real shame if, if you said anything that offended me. I'm, I'm taking my money and giving it elsewhere. I'm going to do something else. And, and uh, to try to use that money as a way of influence over others, the gift of giving in the church is given in sincerity. It is given with the heart of this money is given over to God. It is no longer mine. I do not have any say in this anymore. It is given freely with no strings attached. There is no sense of any obligation to me. There is no sense of any kickback in my direction. I am giving it purely out of my love for God and the church. That's the gift of giving. That's the heart of giving here in these disciples early on, in particular in the life of Barnabas. And you see this temptation of, you know what, money can get me something. Maybe I could give but also I could get something in return, and it's contrasted in the very next verses in Acts chapter number 5. In verse number 1, it says, But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. So in the very previous verses, Barnabas took land, sold it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. In the very next verse, it says Ananias and Sapphira had a possession and sold it. But verse number 2 says, And kept back part of the price his wife also being privy to it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles feet you could see in the minds of these two believers the flesh working itself up hey maybe i could have my cake and eat it too maybe i could give to the church and also look good and look good before the church and also have a little bit of extra money as well Hey, that's not so bad. And this temptation came into the heart of Ananias and Sapphira. And you know what? Peter, by the inspiration, by the moving of the Holy Spirit, said, that guy is lying. And God took his life for it. So there is a very important teaching here of the importance of giving in sincerity. When we give, we give. Out of love, we give it to God and it is no longer mine. It is the Lord's. And that was the gift of giving here. So you have, first of all, this gift of exhortation coming alongside of somebody, saying, hey, I can see what you need to do, and I think you know what you need to do. Hey, why don't you just do the right thing? And encouraging them in a way that will help them to maybe change their perspective and understand, you know what, it, it's, whatever that's holding me back, it's not worth it. And I'm going to do what I need to do. That's what exhortation is. And that's what good friends do. Good friends encourage each other to do the right thing. That's how you know what a friend is. A friend that leads you away from the Lord is, is not a friend. A friend that leads you to the Lord, that's what exhortation is. 
and giving. Giving is, hey, you know what? I have something, I see a need, I want to give, and I will give in simplicity. The third gift that we're taking a look at today is the gift of mercy. The gift of mercy. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. And once again, I want to use an illustration, a story, an event from Luke chapter number 10. So in Luke chapter number 10, Jesus is approached by a lawyer. A lawyer is, of course, an expert in the law. In this case, it's the law of Moses. So here is this lawyer, verse number 25, behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So here is this master of the law going to Jesus and asking him, essentially, what does the law say about how I go to heaven? Jesus says, what is written in the law, how readest thou? What is your understanding? What is your interpretation of the law? That's what he's asking. Verse number 27. And he answering said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Now, is that, is that a good answer? How do you get to heaven? The lawyer says, if you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you can go to heaven. Is that true? Now, these two laws, as we know, Jesus said, when he was asked, what is the great law? He said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He said what? Thou shalt hang all the law on these two laws. Every law is simply a subdivision of these two laws. There's really two laws here. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two laws, right? If you keep those two laws, aren't you keeping all the other laws? And if you keep those two laws, doesn't that mean that you've not broken any of the laws? If you've not broken any of the laws, doesn't that mean that you have no sin? Interesting, right? Now, here's the thing. You and I know we can't keep all of the law. That's the point of the law. The Bible says in the New Testament that the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The point of the law was not, so, hey, if you do all of these things, you could go to heaven. That's not the point of the law. The point of the law is you cannot get to heaven without Jesus. That's the point of the law. But here is a lawyer giving his lawyerly expertise on the matter. Jesus says, thou hast answered right. If you do these two things, you could go to heaven. This do, and thou shalt live. If you do that, you will live. But the lawyer gives the most lawyerly thing to do. <laughs> but he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Isn't that what lawyers do? <laughs> they take the law and they say, well, what, about, well, what do you mean by this word? Maybe this word doesn't mean what you think it means. And maybe, you know, what, it depends on what your definition of the word is, is, you know? And it's like, all right, okay, all right, just tell me what it means, you know? And so here is this lawyer giving this answer that Jesus says, that's the right answer. Do it and you will live. And the lawyer, knowing he can't do it, is trying to justify himself and tries to lawyer up this statement here with, well, but who is my neighbor? 
And so Jesus gives him a little story to teach him, well, let me tell you who your neighbor is. Verse number 30, and Jesus answering said, a certain man went down from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. So you may have heard of the term highway robbery. Uh, It seems like an odd phrase because who gets robbed on the highway, but it used to be a real thing. The highways used to be the roads in between big cities and uh, there's no protection there. And so a lot of people really would get robbed out on these highways and they would the thieves would hide among the hills and the bushes and the rocks and all of this. And when they saw somebody vulnerable, they would attack him. They would take everything that they could from him. And uh, that's what they would do. So this is literally highway robbery. They wounded him and he's, he's half dead, just lying there on the side of the road with nothing, no way of helping himself. So the Bible says in verse number 31, and by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, take care of him and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. So Jesus gives this whole story that we know as the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he comes back around to the lawyer and asks him the question, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? Here is a priest, here is a Levite, here is a Samaritan. The one looked on him, went the other way. The second looked on him, went the other way. The third came and bound up his wounds, poured out oil and wine, put him on his own beast, took him to the inn, paid the money to have him taken care of and said, whatever is extra, I'll come back and I'll repay you. Which of those three individuals was the neighbor of the man that fell among the thieves? And he said, he that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, go and do thou likewise. Now, of course, we know the story of the Good Samaritan. We know this this parable, I'm sure, quite well. But I wanted to focus in on what the lawyer said at the very end. Who was the neighbor? He said, he that showed mercy on him. Here was a man that was wounded and needed help, and somebody showed mercy on him. It's been said that the church is not a hall of saints, but a hospital for sinners. You know, this place of what we call our church. The church, of course, is not the building, it's the people, but we gather together in this place. And when we come together to this church, we come together understanding that there are many that are wounded, many that are hurt. There's a lot of things out in life that hurt people. You may have had some hurts from the world, Satan would love nothing more than the hurt Christians, to wound them. He's attacking them. So you go out into the world, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a friend or a neighbor, somebody that you know, somebody who's wicked, somebody who doesn't follow God, somebody who doesn't listen to God or care about God, wounding the believer, and they come to the church service wounded a little bit in their spirit. 
wounded in their, in their determination to live for God, wounded in their faithfulness. And you could see somebody coming in a little bit wounded. Maybe it's just from the pressures of life. There's a lot of difficulties out in life, financial pressures, emotional pressures, and, and uh, cultural pressures, family pressures, all sorts of pressures from your work and your career and, and all around and, and just trying to keep up with what's going on. And there, there could be some pressures and, and some different things. And you, you might walk into this service this morning a little bit wounded. You try to put a smile on your face, but deep down inside, you feel a little bit wounded. Sadly to say, sometimes it's even fellow believers. Sometimes a fellow Christian says the wrong thing. They have their own pride in their heart. They have their own selfishness. They have their own issues in their relationship with the Lord, and and that causes damage and wounding to others. You could see how this gift of mercy is so much needed in the church. You know, health is really something that we don't think about too much until we don't have it, right? You don't really think about your health until something hurts, right? You know, and I, I've had uh, these uh, kind of these back problems and had my back really tighten up and, you know, it kind of comes and goes and I, I've been able to manage it pretty well recently, but you know, there were a couple of years when I was, you know, I struggled a lot, you know, and sometimes I would uh, get up and something, you know, I'd tweak something and, you know, I really couldn't, I didn't feel good all day long. And, and uh, there, there's been days where I, I tweaked it and just breathing hurt. And uh, so I was lying in bed all day. And if you've had that, you know about that. And I'm sure many of you have had uh, some health difficulties, but it's kind of strange that human nature, as soon as we start to feel better again, we kind of forget about that. You know, we kind of forgot that our back was hurting. We kind of forgot that our knee was giving us problems. We kind of forgot about the pains and the headaches and all of that until it comes back again. And then you're like, ah, you know, and I should have taken my medication. I should have exercised more. I should have eaten better, you know, and then we go back, you know, and, you know, that, that's kind of how I see this gift of mercy. This gift of mercy can very easily be overlooked until you get wounded. And it's when you get wounded that you begin to look for that gift of mercy. And and there are people here in the church that have this wonderful gift of mercy that they look to see the wounded. And they're they're coming for the wounded. You know, uh, we we moved into a place on uh, on Rosecrans and uh, uh, we we live right by, you know, that street there, you know. And uh, one of the things about uh, living on a major street and especially not just living on a major street, but when you live on a major street and there's a, there's a fire station just up the street, is uh, these fire engines go by all the time, you know? And uh, every time there's an accident or every time there's a call out for, hey, somebody might be injured, they go out, you know? And uh, I didn't really think about it or know, know about this, but uh, when there's a call that goes out, you know, it's not just the ambulances that go, but the fire engines will go. And the police, you know, whoever's closest in the area, they'll, they'll all end up over there. So that's why sometimes, you know, you'll have like this minor little incident, but then you'll see like three police cars and an ambulance and two fire trucks. And like, what, what happened here? You know, but they didn't know who was going to get there first. So they all just kind of converge on that area at the same time. And, and uh, praise the Lord for this ambulance that they're not waiting for you to be like, hey, if you want help, come over here. <laughs> you know? Aren't you glad for the ambulance that says, hey, if you need help, we're, gonna, we're coming to you. And that's what the gift of mercy is. The gift of mercy is, if you will, a spiritual ambulance, if you will. Hey, we're coming to you, and uh, we may not be able to heal you, but we'll take you to the person who can. You know, we're not spiritual healers here in the church. 
but we know a great physician. There's a great physician that can heal. Heal all wounds that you might have in your heart, have in your spirit. And here is the great physician. And you know what the gift of mercy is? You know the person with that gift of mercy? They're like spiritual ambulances. They go out searching for people with wounds, people with needs, and say, you know what? I want to help you and bring you to the one that can help you. And they care for them and they commit themselves to the wounded. You see that that's what the Samaritan did. He gave himself so that, that this person might be helped. And then they, they took him to the inn and they said, hey, you know what? If there's any other needs, I'll take care of it when I return. Just make sure that he is made well. That's what that gift of mercy is. And you can see the importance of the gift of mercy, the gift of healing. You know, there's a disease where uh, your body doesn't clot properly. And if you get cut, then, then you, could, you just start bleeding, bleeding and bleeding. You know, most of us, if we get cut, sometimes we don't even notice that we get cut until we know, oh, hey, what's that from? I guess I got cut somewhere. And, uh, you know, you just naturally heal. But if you cannot heal, you're in danger all the time. And you know what that gift of mercy, that gift of mercy helps the believers to say, hey, you know what? If you don't get this healed, you're going to be in big trouble. Hey, let me help you with that. Let me, let, let's go to the word. Hey, let's go to the great physician. Hey, let's get some help here. You can be made whole. You can take the wounds that are in your heart from what a brother said, what a sister did, all those things that happen out there in the world, and you can come before the great physician and he could heal you and help you so that you would be made whole. And isn't that important in the body? That's what the church is. If you've been born again, you've trusted Christ as your Savior to save you from your sins, you've been baptized and added to the membership of this church, you've been made a member of the body of Christ here at Bible Baptist Church. And you know what? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, hey, you know what? If one body part hurts, we all hurt together, right? You ever sprained an ankle? Boy, it's, it's not like, well, ankle, that's too tough. Well, I'm just going to keep on living my life. Man, your whole body reacts to your ankle being hurt, you know? And you're like, ah, it hurts, you know? And everything stops because that one part is wounded. That one part is hurt. You know what? That gift of mercy pays attention to that part, helps it, heals it, so that we could be whole and move forward together. You could see how all of these gifts are important here in the church. The gift of mercy, the gift of giving, and the gift of exhortation.